Scripture says, In those days there was no real leader, and everyone did whatever they wanted. Does that sound at all familiar? And everyone did whatever they wanted. Everything about the setting of today's story is absolutely terrible. There was political chaos as Philistine enemies were pressing in on the flanks of Israel. The national leadership, whatever that was, was worse than a bad joke. There was a frighteningly wide famine that had set in. And the last judge who sat to rule before the time of Ruth was a man named Jephthah the Gileadite. He had stirred up a civil war that resulted in 40,000 Israelites being killed, including his own daughter. There was no real leader in the land, and everyone did whatever they wanted. In these days, in our time, we fight and bicker about who is really in charge, and most people do whatever they want. And most things about today feel absolutely terrible. There is political chaos as we wrestle with the meaning behind something like the midterms, and we wonder what's going to happen to our country. The national leadership, whatever that is, continues to bicker about everything on a two-week cycle, so we always forget what we were talking about two weeks ago. And this week, this week marked the 307th mass shooting in our country this year. For the sake of context, there have only been 314 days this year. The 307th mass shooting out of 314 days. And so it's against this same kind of frightening and turbulent domestic scale that we get the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It's an old story. An old, old story that still speaks some truth into our lives today. So there was a famine. There was a famine in the land that was so terrible that Naomi and her husband and her two sons were forced to flee from their home, a town called Bethlehem, which is ironic because Bethlehem means little town of bread. There was no more bread in the little town of bread, and so they had to leave. They fled to a place called Moab. It's a foreign place. And as soon as they get there, Naomi's husband dies. The widow now only has her two sons, who very fortunately find two Moabite wives. Their names were Orpah and Ruth. And then both of her sons die. No ruler in the land. There's no food to eat. She has no husband, and now she has no sons. There are three widows left, with no income, no rights, and no hope for any future. So Naomi, she decides she's going to return to the little town of Bread. She's going to send her daughters-in-law back to their respective families and get on with her life. Orpah, she cries, she weeps, but she leaves. But not Ruth. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says rather famously, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. So they return to the town of bread. Ruth, she's a stranger in a strange land. And Naomi, she might as well be. The last time she was at home, she had a husband. She had two sons. She had hope. But now she returns with nothing but a foreigner. A foreigner who is her daughter-in-law. So Ruth, she volunteers to go out in the field to glean from the harvest so that she can have some food to eat with her mother-in-law. And she meets the other member of the trio, Boaz. Boaz is impressed when he learns the story of this strange woman who risked it all for someone she had no reason to. And that's where the story picks up what Pam read for us today. 
Naomi, she tries her hand at matchmaking and she gets Ruth all dolled up and prepared for a midnight rendezvous. So this is where I ask all those under the age of 13 to cover their ears for a moment because things get pretty intense. She says, wait until he's good and drunk and asleep and then go uncover his feet. Friends, I'm just going to let it sit there for a second. So depending on your imagination, something PG-13 or something very R happens. And then God finally shows up in the story. It says, they made love. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Obed. And he would be the father of Jesse and the father of David. This small and wonderful little book toward the beginning of the Old Testament, it challenges many of our assumptions about what's really important in this world. Because while some of us might have stayed up late into the evening on Tuesday looking forward to the results of elections, while we might tune into our favorite station every night and every morning for important notes from the day, while we might flick through our Twitter feed with ferocity, the really important events of life, they happen in the most regular of places. The whole book of Ruth, from beginning to end, it dwells on the small and the not evidently earth-shaking interactions between three extraordinarily ordinary people, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. And that's probably why we love the story so much. It's probably why couples ask me to preach on the story of Ruth at their weddings more than any other text. It's probably why most of us know more about Ruth than we know about Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Zephaniah all combined. Because in other places in the Bible, we can read about matriarchs, we can read about patriarchs, we can catch glimpses of drastic and divine miracles, we can learn about the prophets and the kings, we can read about the people with special missions from the Lord to do incredible things. But then here we get Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, people who are just like us. And if Ruth is a story about any one thing, it's a story about hope. Not hope that just falls out of the sky like manna from heaven, but a hope that is born out of a persistence to be generous. A persistence to have care for the other. Because in the characters and all the conversations, we come as close as we can to the manifestation of what we in the church call God's grace. It was while they were worn down by the times in which they found themselves that Ruth and Naomi clung to each other when they had nothing else. They were from completely different places, with different cultures, different expectations, but in one another they found something that was worth staying with, no matter what. And so, of course, we can read this story. You can have a half-decent sermon all about Ruth's faithfulness. Someone like me can say, you all need to behave like Ruth and be faithful. And she certainly takes an incalculable and completely unnecessary risk by staying with Naomi. She left her home. She left everything she knew to accompany her mother-in-law to a small town of bread where she was definitely viewed with nothing but suspicion. But the story isn't just about Ruth. It's also about the strange and mysterious ways in which God works through the ordinary to make the extraordinary possible. And yet, something we gloss over, something we forget, is that Ruth has no reason to demonstrate the immense possibility of God's faithfulness because she wasn't a Hebrew. She wasn't part of the covenant. She was a Moabite. She was a foreigner crossing over the border. Someone to be viewed with nothing but disdain and suspicion. And yet, she is the one who shines throughout the story as a marker of the glory of the Lord. 
this story, this story about Ruth, it teaches us, those who read it, about the quality of relationships that enable life with others to be decent and secure and even at times to be happy. The three central characters, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they are all genuinely concerned with the needs of the other in selfless ways. And so even reading it today, it bombards our sensibilities and expectations about who deserves our time, who deserves our respect, and who deserves God's love. Just like those Israelites long ago, during the time of Ruth, most of us are worn down by the events of today. We are currently witnesses to cataclysmic events like the war in Yemen, like horrible, devastating fires that are possibly due to climate change. We are witnesses to the never-ending political unrest that all seem to offer no hope of any better future. And that's why I believe the story of Ruth is particularly meant for us to hear today. Because in a time such as ours, acts of generosity, acts of connection, acts of compassion, they open up the future that God intends for us. From continuing to show up in a church and breaking bread with people who definitely voted differently than us, to reaching out to the people in our community who don't have food to eat, who don't have clothes to wear, to just being mindful of the veterans in our midst who so often go overlooked. When the bonds between ourselves and whomever we might call the other are brought together, we, like Ruth, begin to see the kingdom. Because ultimately, that's what the story of Ruth is about. It's about what the kingdom looks like. Not necessarily a kumbaya and laissez-faire attitude to the powers and principalities around us, but at least a willingness to look at someone in the eye and say, I don't understand you. I don't even agree with you, but I want to be with you. I want our relationship to be built on love and not on hate and not on distrust and not on fear. Ruth's story, it shouldn't work out the way that it does. The amount of tragedy should have derailed the widows completely from any possibility of a new day dawning. But from the beginning to the end, everyone is brought further and further forward because of God's grace. God always works in the world through the Ruths and the Naomi's and even the Boaz's in the most extraordinarily ordinary circumstances. As Christians, you don't have to climb to the top of the highest mountain to hear the Holy Spirit's word for your life. You don't have to retreat into solitude at a monastery to experience the profound wonder of God's grace. You don't have to give up everything you own to recognize what Jesus gave up for you. In Ruth's story, in her time of terrible losses and frightening trouble and oppositional tyranny and destructive pain, she found ways to grab hold of others, other possibilities through the ordinary moments of the Spirit. And it's those moments, not the mountaintop moments, but the ordinary moments, sometimes small, sometimes even missable, those are the ones that define us. Those are the huge moments of our life because they shake the very foundations of what we foolishly believe is good and right and true. Long before there was a church, Long before there was doctrine and theology and creeds and even liturgical holidays, there were just normal people. Normal people who discovered profound richness in the most ordinary places. Like a church. This church 
It's another place, just like Ruth's family, where we have opportunities to learn what it means to live with people we did not choose. It is through our continued and fervent presence with those with whom we are stuck with that we catch a glimpse of the fidelity of our God who is stuck with us. I believe deep in my bones that the church is the last place, the last place where we can willingly gather with people who are different than us. It's the last place where we bind ourselves to those with whom we disagree, even those with whom we feel hatred. And strangely, this story, it ends in such a weird way. Because Ruth's story ends not with her cradling her own new baby boy, but with her mother-in-law, Naomi, bringing him to her bosom. The whole town. says all the women from the town surround them in this moment, and they see redemption. But in the strangest of forms, they see redemption in a little baby boy. Everything about their lives has been redeemed by God in this infant named Obed, without whom there would be no Jesse, without whom there would be no David. And as we read it, this final scene of a woman holding a baby, it makes us think of another woman. Another woman cradling a baby in Bethlehem some 30 generations later. Again, the world is in desperate need of hope. Again, a woman travels without knowing what her future will hold, and again, she holds something precious in her hands, a baby and the redemption of the world. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.